The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John 14, 1 through 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way. You know where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now, on you, do you know him and have seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still Do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else... Believe on the account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come now in the matchless name of your precious Son, that darling of heaven, the lover of our souls. And we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would be given grace to see that wherein we fail, uh, Jesus on our behalf mightily prevails. For we ask it in his majestic name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Excuse me just for a second, a wet mosul. If you're still holding on to your uh, hydro flasks, I suppose we can still be friends, but uh, I might judge you uh, as I hoist my Stanley H2.0 flow state tumbler, right? If you know, you know. You know, we received these as Christmas gifts at CPA, staff and faculty. I, uh, I didn't realize just how impressive a gift this was until I got home with it. And my daughter, Lydia, immediately relieved me of the burden of owning it. But for the fleeting moment that I did possess this, uh, my future daughter-in-law, who was with us over Christmas, she hoisted her Stanley Cup in my direction and welcomed me into that exclusive club. I snuck it out of the house this morning. I'm not supposed to touch it. I can't even look at it. Certainly not supposed to drink out of it. There you go. I'll let you look at it. 
Um, I think I'll become a hashtag water talk influencer. Imagine, imagine the, the, the number of views we can get on this sermon uh, if we just like hashtag Stanley Cup sermon. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be impressive. I watched a video recently of a couple of preteen girls receiving Stanley Cups for Christmas, and they were elated. They, they were just losing their minds over this, and the person interviewing them asked them, why are you so excited about receiving a Stanley Cup? One of the uh, young girls said, because I can drink water out of it. You see, with these, with these cups, you can drink water. These actually, these actually hold water, these cups do. Um, many of us have seen the, uh, by now, the, the viral video of the Target stampede, uh, December 31st, uh, Target's Galentine's collection. Uh, it was a Cosmo pink and the Target exclusive red Stanley tumblers. They sold out online and in stores in minutes. That video of the stampede at that Target store has been watched some, are you ready for this, 110.1 million times on TikTok. Hashtag Stanley Tumblr has accumulated over one billion views. There was a particular resale website, StockX, that actually had one of these go, uh, an exclusive uh, edition for $29,000. And part of this all got started because uh, back in, uh, in November, Stanley gained attention after a woman posted a video of her car which caught on fire, and after the, the fire was put out, her Stanley cup was still there, unscathed, ice, still in, in the cup. And so uh, that video racked up over 92 million views, and the CEO of, uh, of Stanley, uh, actually, they replaced her Stanley cup and her car. So now part of the reason uh, for this being such a, a cultural phenomenon right now is that the usual pattern of these kind of cultural trends is that usually it begins kind of, say, with Gen Z, TikTok, and then it moves up to millennials, the Instagram uh, crowd, and then it moves into uh, y'all Facebookers, which means it can't be cool anymore. Interestingly, the Stanley Cup thing uh, did kind of a wrench in all of that. Because the, the craze began with millennials, kind of the, the Instagram crowd, and then now the TikTok crowd has jumped on board, and eventually, when all the Facebookers will catch up to it, it won't be cool anymore, and you'll be able to get these on discount at Ross Dress for Less. <laughs> now, I actually think, I actually think that um, these kind of consumer trends can be fun if, if we take them in stride. Um, I wonder, though, what it says about the human heart, in all seriousness, how we can lose our way so easily when I watch some of the reactions of people in these videos who missed getting their hands on the exclusives. There was like a Target exclusive, a Starbucks exclusive, an Olay exclusive. Uh, in, in reality, um, people will eventually come to accept the truth that water can be contained and dispensed from a variety of vessels. Uh, you know, there was there was Hydro Flask. Uh, now there's Stanley. Um, you know, back in 2015, some of you still carry on your swell or your Nalgene if you're, if you're keeping it real. You were the OG in all of this. Um, the, the reality, though, is um, because I'm, I'm a faithful shepherd and, and I want to I pastor you, I want to pastor you well, um, while hashtag water talk is going to continue, uh, a new 
water bottle brand, uh, Awala, is on the horizon making its way into the mainstream. And so I, I, don't, I not only want to be faithful to you as a pastor, but I want to keep you on the cutting edge of, of pop culture. Um, here's the thing. We, we love exclusives, and, and they're fun. They, they, they can be fun. You own an exclusive, but um, the exclusivity of that great biblical Reformation doctrine of solus Christus seems to many to be too narrow, um, too certain. Our, our text this morning, you heard it read, is about the exclusivity of Christ, and it is also very much about our hearts. It's about the exclusivity of Christ and very much about our hearts. Jonathan Edwards uh, said that, that we must see that our chief study be about our hearts. There God's image may be planted, that there his interests be advanced, that there the world, the flesh, and the devil are subdued, that there the love of every sin is cast out, and that there in your heart the love of, of holiness grows. Now, y'all Many of you know my, my love for the Puritans. Uh, some of you maybe have this uh, misunderstanding about them, that they were just these kind of grim graybeards, but they were disciples of Christ who had hearts grace-besotted and grace-steeped, far from dry, arid theology that had no application for life. They were chiefly concerned with knowing and growing the believer's heart for Jesus. Now, let's listen to, to some, of these, some of these Puritans, what they had to say about your heart and mine. One of the, one of the most important books that I have ever used in, in private biblical counseling is a book by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. And he lived from 1599 to 1646. And the title of that book is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, you and I need to know two books. We need to know the book of the Lord, the Bible, and we need to know the book of our hearts. They talked about doing heart inventory, being well acquainted with your heart. What is going on in your hearts? John Flavel, another one of the Puritans, said, oh, study your hearts, watch your hearts, keep your hearts. He said, heart work is hard work indeed. Get your heart broken for sin while you are actually confessing it, melted with free grace, even while you are blessing God for it, to be really ashamed and humble through the awareness of God's infinite holiness, and to keep your heart in this state, not only in, but after all these duties will surely cost you some groans and travailing pain of soul. Richard Alleen wrote a lot about your heart and a lot about my heart. It's as if he's been reading our mail. And he lived all the way back in 1611 to 91. But listen to what he said. And this is such a beautiful example of how the, the Puritans were both physicians of the soul and pharmacists of, of the conscious. He said, there are many cares that lie daily upon us. We have our estates, our names, our families, and our bodies to take care of, but our great care must be for our hearts. He goes on to say, get the temper of your hearts to be changed. Let the Word work to mollify you and change your heart, to renew you after the image of God in righteousness and holiness. Well, John 14, it's an eventful night. So far, wouldn't you agree? Imagine the faces of this little band of, of disciples as their master, uh, the one they thought was going to restore Israel to her rightful place of, of military and economic prominence and prestige among the nations. Uh, he comes in and bedecks himself, not with gold and jewels and luxurious purple gowns, but with a towel, just a chapter earlier, demanding not that the finest of wine be poured out for him, but that water be poured out in a basin so that he could wash their feet. What do you suppose was going on in their 
in their hearts. Now, the context here of this chapter, the context of this chapter, Jesus has been dropping bombshells left and right. He has been dropping bombshells left and right. First of all, in John 8, 58, he dropped the bombshell on the Pharisees about his divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. You turn a few pages, he drops a bombshell on death in John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the grave. And now in 13, verse 21, there's a bombshell dropped on his disciples. There is going to be a betrayal in our midst. Can you imagine what a dreadful and shocking announcement that must have been? There was a betrayer in their midst, piercing such an intimate moment they were having. Their hearts were confused. He drops a bombshell about his divinity, a bombshell on death, a bombshell about the disciples and one of them betraying, a bombshell in 1333 about his imminent departure, and then finally a bombshell about Peter's denial. This was sort of a triple strike bombshell that forms the background of John 14. Their hearts are disturbed and they are disoriented. They are going to deny, they're going to betray, they're going to run and, 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 and hide. And, and so here in John 14, you see the beginning of what is known in John's gospel as the farewell discourse. Jesus is about to depart, and he is sharing his heart with his disciples. And you would think to yourself, you know, if, if Jesus is about to leave, and these are going to be his final words to his disciples, what is he going to cover with them? Is he going to give them a sort of mini-seminar on church marketing and, and strategic thinking for church growth? No. His final words to his disciples disciples are ultimately about two things, the Trinity and tribulation. The Trinity and tribulation, the, the persons of the Godhead, and the reality of persecution for believing in them. And so they are disoriented. You consider the, the questions of, of Peter here in chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Uh, Thomas, here in, in verse 5 of chapter 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Or, or in, in verse 8, uh, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Or, or Judas, the son of James, in verse 22 of, of chapter 14, what, is, what does he say? Uh, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? They're very confused. They're full of questions right now. Their hearts are going all over the place. And so Jesus, Jesus comes to them, and, and he comes to us. He knows their hearts are troubled. He knows that our hearts are so easily troubled. And, and so we look to him, we look to Jesus this morning, and we find two things we desperately need. He is the pharmacist, and he is the physician. He is the pharmacist, and he is the physician. Our, um, our family is becoming more aware of a pharmacy as Luke's fiance is finishing up her doctor of pharmacy degree at University of South Carolina, a pharmacist knows right where the right medicine is for what ails us. And Jesus takes down three bottles, three bottles of ointment, as it were, and he opens them up. The first one is persuasion. You notice he gives an imperative here. Me tarasesto humon he cardia. Don't let your hearts be troubled. That's an imperative. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In other words, Jesus is saying, speak truth to your troubles. Beloved, we need to stop giving our emotions canonical status in our lives. The heart of what Jesus is saying is that our hearts do not have to be captive to our situation, but convinced of our Savior. One of the great heresies, and it sounds so innocuous, it's even warm-hearted on the surface, but one of the great heresies of our culture is that we should follow our hearts. No, don't follow your hearts. My heart is my problem to begin with. Don't follow your hearts. 
Give your heart to Jesus and follow him. Don't give canonical status to your feelings. He follows up this imperative with yet another imperative. It's right here. Pistuita eis ton theo. Believe in God. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. The right medicine, beloved, for a troubled heart is to believe that God is and Hebrews eleven six 6, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. I said it just a couple of weeks ago. One of the, the sure solutions for my anxiety and yours is discipleship. The cure for a troubled heart is to believe that God is who he says he is. Now remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples here about the reality of the Trinity here in the farewell discourse. To believe in God is to know that the Trinity is the very basis of truth. I have the privilege of teaching students as, as a pastor of theology and spiritual life over here at the academy. And whether I'm teaching the students across the breezeway or seminary students in apologetics classes, I have the privilege of saying to them that apart from the triune God of the Bible and the Bible of the triune God, we cannot account for the requisites of intelligibility and reality as we experience it. In other words, we do not offer in the Christian faith a strong probability argument that God exists. If the Trinity is not who the Trinity says that they are, we cannot account for the requisites of intelligibility and reality as we experience it. Inductive reasoning upon which science depends. Deductive reasoning upon which mathematics depends. The regularity of nature upon which science depends. Objectivity and predication upon which speech and reading and communication depends. Universals, personhood, morality, the list goes on and on and on. Only the Trinitarian theistic biblical worldview can account for those things. A materialistic, atheistic, worldview can assert logic, even use logic, but by its own worldview presuppositions, a materialistic, atheistic presupposition cannot account for logic as logic. Only a Trinitarian worldview can, can do that. An atheistic worldview, all that exists is matter in random motion. Matter in randomness can account for logic. All logic and reason are for the materialist atheist are just material processes of chemicals and neurons engaged in a blind, chaotic dance in these accidental material masses we call brains. If I can paraphrase C.S. Lewis, who said, if all my thoughts are just chemical actions and reactions in my brain, then I have no reason to trust the thought that all my thoughts are just chemical actions and reactions happening in my brain. You know, Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, said it this way, famous atheist, we live, you and I, in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference that only has the appearance of order. Beloved, that is no cure for a troubled heart. That we live in a universe, though, that bears the marks of divinity. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Or Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hand. Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that, Lord, full well. Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. John 1, verse 3, through him, through Jesus, were all things made. And without him, without Jesus, was not any 
anything made that has been made. Romans 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been created so that people are without excuse. Or what we read in Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you realize right now that every cell and every fiber of your body coheres and does what it does at the immediate word command of Jesus Christ? Every cell and every fiber and every strand of grass on that frozen front lawn exists and coheres because Jesus is telling it to. Let us not fall into a default deism where we think God has created things and gone on a permanent vacation. Jesus speaks everything to existence. All of reality is logocentric. All of reality is spoken reality at the mouth, at the command, at the power of Jesus, the creator of all things. Indeed, this is my Father's world, as the old hymn says. I rest me in the thought. Amen, yes. It's a cure for a troubled heart, y'all. If I believe that I live in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference, and as a Christian, I would, I would never say that. But can I ask you, do you find at times that you fear that that just might be the case? Yes, you know all the Sunday school answers, but you fear in your heart that maybe God has checked out and you are just left in a universe, not that is hostile toward you, but even worse, does not care. Now, this is our Father's world. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. But no sooner does he give that imperative, believe God, that he gives this imperative. Pistuita eis tontheon, kai eis eme pistuita. Believe also in me. The Greek word pistuita from pistis, faith, to trust in, to cling to, rely upon. And quite literally here, when he says, kai eis eme pistuita, quite literally, believe into me. Believe into me. This is the reason for the entire gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life upon his name. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He confesses the truth about who Jesus is. He is believing into Christ. But of course, so often we find ourselves more persuaded by Pilate in many ways, one of the most prominent postmodernists in all of the Bible, who in John 18, verse 38, when Jesus is standing before him about to be crucified, Pilate says, they say you are the king of the Jews. Jesus said, you have spoken the truth. Do you remember Pilate's response? What is truth? What is truth? This is even knowable. Believe into me, Jesus says. Believe into me and have not. Listen, John 10, 10, have not the redundant life, but the abundant life. And let me ask you this, how does he give us that life in abundance in John 10.10? 10? How does he give us that life in abundance? By laying down his life in atonement, John 10.11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Charles Spurgeon, that great London Baptist prince of preachers, said it well. Kindly look down your Bibles and you will see that this direction is repeated. He says in the opening of the 11th verse, believe me. Then again in the second clause, believe me. He says, as I tried to enter into the meaning of this sacred utterance that I heard Jesus at my side saying three times to me, believe me, believe me, believe me. All of that right here in John 14. The soothing salve, beloved, for a troubled heart is to believe in the Father and the Son by the grace of the Spirit. The comforting word for a troubled heart is the Word, the Word of God incarnated. John 1.1, Jesus himself through the Word of God inscripturated as he gives us his Word. John, John tells us that we can know the Father through the Son and have a life in His name. Paul says as much in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. If we believe that Jesus, right, has been raised from the grave and confess Him as Lord, we will be saved. It really is not simplistic, but it is simple. The baseline solution for a troubled heart, the result thereof is eternal Life. Truly, truly, John 5, 24, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, has been passed from death to life. That is what is true of you right now. If you believe in Jesus, you've already passed from judgment. You are righteous in the sight of the Father. You heard Lyric talking about that earlier. You're righteous in his sight, and you have already passed from death to life. I was saved when I was seven years of age. I remember at a little church in Gallatin. I remember getting saved, but, but, but I remember my mama telling me my whole life when I was three years of age, three years old, she had a noise down the hallway, and at three years of age, I'd stacked up some boxes in my bedroom, and she came back to this noise going on in my bedroom and some cardboard boxes stacked up, and I was behind those boxes preaching, preaching by myself in my bedroom and God, and God, and God. Now, I was an Arminian then. I'm a Calvinist now. The sermon would be, but God, but God, but God. But any, and if you know, you know. But at any rate, from the youngest of age, I believe these things. In my very heart of hearts, I knew that Jesus was who he says he was. That's why we baptize our children, so that they would grow up never knowing a day that they did not know that Jesus was beautiful and that Jesus loved them. Yes, we know, for the Bible and this baptism tells them so. Sound theology, beloved, buoyed my heart when I was a little bitty guy, and it is sad from my heart now that I'm an old man. Sound theology equals hope. Our pharmacist offers us the medicine of persuasion and the medicine of, of place. Soothe your hearts with this, Jesus says, heaven is real and I'll return. Heaven is real, and I'll return. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again for you. Heaven is real, and I will return. Colossians 3, one of the most formational passages for me in all of the Scripture. Colossians 3, the first four verses, the Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Where? In glory. When Luke was a little bitty guy, we'd play hide and seek. When he was just a little toddler, we'd play hide and seek. And I would hide my eyes and, 
and um, I would count, and he would just stand right in the middle of the room, and he would close his eyes as tightly as he could. And, and his, his logic was, if his eyes are closed and he couldn't see where he was, then I couldn't see where he was. The beauty of what we're told here is that um, we no longer hide. We no longer hide in shame. We are eyes wide open, gazing at the beauty of our Savior. What do we read in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And beloved, what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as He is pure. Jesus says, I am preparing a place for yours. This is yours. A place. But our hearts and our hopes have been concretized by the materialist smog we breathe. The weight of glory was actually a sermon C.S. Lewis preached June 8, 1941 at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford, and he mounted that pulpit and listened to what he says. He diagnoses my heart and yours. You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost our, all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. He would later go on to give a series of talks for the BBC in the dark days of World War II. They were originally published as broadcast talks. Later they became known, you ready for this? Mere Christianity. And he gives us the solution there to this spell that we need to be cast over our hearts which have just become anesthetized to the reality of the place that Jesus holds out for us. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. He gets at it so beautifully in the last battle. In the last battle in Narnia, where, where the unicorn, he says, uh, stamps his right forehoof on the ground. He neighs and cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country when he gets to heaven. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Jesus says, this is the cure for your troubled heart. I'm preparing a place for you. And you will say, I am home at last. I have been waiting for this my whole life. Read at some point Calvin's Institutes, book two. Um, you'll see there at the end, in book two, uh, chapter nine, verse, uh, chapter nine and sections one to six, a, a, a section that he calls meditation on the future life. Meditation on the future life. I would encourage you, spend some time there and see how a saint of old just marinated himself in the promises of Jesus of heaven. The Puritans meditated on heaven amidst persecution. It's what got them through it, right? We, we say with the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? And one of those comforts is that he assures me of eternal life. Jesus is saying, this is what I hold out for you. One of the most beautiful experiences I have as a pastor is when I get to be with saints who are nearing heaven, they can't wait to get home. Part of our problem, though, is that we try to make ourselves think that's all there is. 
We're home now. We don't realize we live between the already and the not yet. And yet, if we have the eyes of faith, there are times we can see the veil really is thin. Even on a morning like this, I bet some of you came here this morning thinking, I wonder if we'll have a big crowd. You know, it's weather's bad. I wonder if we'll have a big crowd this morning. I bet we're going to be low. I was even saying that myself. We were driving, and I said, I don't know, people. They're going to be iced in. Not going to get out in this cold weather. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fragile flower, y'all. The fact that I'm here this morning, I should have just done this by video, made y'all sit and take it, because I am a fragile flower. I don't like this cold weather, but here we are. And I got to tell you, I'm kind of impressed by how many people showed up. But regardless of how many people are here this morning, if we had the eyes of faith and could see what the Scripture says about when we gather for corporate worship, what would we see? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, we read that when we come together for worship, we have come not to 2323 ultimately, but to Mount Zion, the city of God. And we are surrounded by angels in festal gathering, the saints who have gone on before us, and the firstborn from the dead. In other words, if we had eyes to see through that thin veil of heaven touching earth, we would see. There's a huge crowd here this morning. And that heavenly reality that is our ultimate home, we could feel it. We could believe in it just a little bit more. We're told in the very next chapter, chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, here we have no enduring city. But we seek one that is to come, therefore by him enter into it. Jesus says, this place is mine for you, you will enter it by me. His promise that he makes, that's the third bottle that he opens up. The promise of many moni, rooms, like, like one dwelling with many apartments. Maybe, maybe think like the Shire, right? This is the kind of picture that, that he's painting here. The promise of heaven is held out for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21 and following, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. When the believer dies, their soul is immediately in the presence of Christ. And Paul says, that is better by far than anything we experience here. But the good news is that it gets even better. Jesus says, heaven is a real place and I'm going to return for you. He's coming back for us. We say it with the Nicene Creed of 325, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is coming back to raise our bodies from the grave. Well, I tell you so often, Christian burial is not the disposal of a body. It's a resurrection deposit because Jesus is going to make a resurrection withdrawal. And our march to the cemetery is not an acquiescence to death. It is a faith-filled defiance of death, a final act of worship in the one who has promised that death will not have the last words. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 that Jesus is returning, and then he concludes that by saying, and since Jesus is returning, comfort one another with these words. The comfort of a troubled heart is that Jesus is returning. He is the pharmacist. He knows the medicine we need, but he's also the physician. He's also the physician when he says here, I am the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. An old theologian, Francis Turretin, lived back 1623 to 87, says that you and I have need of what in the Latin is called a curare triplus. We need a triple cure for our threefold disease. And that curare triplus, that threefold cure is what he called the munis triplex or the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We are ignorant. We need a prophet to teach us the truth. We're guilty. We need a priest to cover our shame. We are wayward. We need a king to corral us and, and protect us. 
When Jesus says here, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just making that up on the fly. These are all Old Testament ideas, and he's fulfilling all of it. A prophet proclaims the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. The priest leads the way into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the way to the Holy of Holies. And I love what one New Testament scholar from Britain many years ago, Donald Guthrie, said, just as nothing could bar Jesus from entering the holies, so nothing can bar you from entering into the Holy of Holies. A king protects the lives of his people. Jesus is life. He is the king of life. Doubting Thomas is confused. Doubting Thomas is confused. And so Jesus gives him the most baseline answer to the question of who he is. And he speaks to him there of his exclusivity. If you ask the man on the street, who is Jesus, you get any number of answers. Back in 2022, Ligonier Ministries did a state of theology survey for professing evangelicals in America. And, and this is, is somewhat shocking. The statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of professing evangelicals agreed. We don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going, Master. Jesus is saying, okay, well, listen, I'll point the way to you. No, I am the way. Every time Jesus utters one of the I am statements, what is he saying about himself? He's claiming to be no less than the very one who spoke to Moses in Exodus 3. Whom shall I say sent me? Tell them Yahweh. I am that I am. And so Jesus in John 8, 58 says, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am the bread of life. John 6, 35, 48 and 51. I am the bread of life. I am the light. 8, 12 and 9, 5. I am the door. John 10, 7 and 9. I am Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11 to 14. You ever thought about the fact that when Jesus would have grown up as a little boy in synagogue singing and chanting Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he was singing and chanting about himself. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the true vine, John 15, verse 1. In every single instant, he is saying, I am Yahweh in the Old Testament. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And if we come to him and the exclusivity of who he is as our Savior, we will contain water, not, not, not an exclusive cup of water, but we will be filled overflowing with water. Uh, Jesus says in John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For his scripture has said, whoever believes into me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Except no imposters. Jesus doesn't. Isaiah 48, verse 11, Jesus will share his glory with none other. I'll never forget when I was in college, one of my English professors stamped her fist on the desk and she says, I am convinced there are more than one stairway to heaven. And C.S. Lewis's story, The Silver Chair, Lucy was convinced there just might be more than one way to heaven. And the lion says to her, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And they begin negotiating back and forth. She was dying of thirst. Well, then come and drink. But she was afraid. Will you move away from the stream while I do? And the lion, of course, wouldn't move the whole time. She's being drawn just a little bit nearer and a little bit nearer. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? 
I make no such promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I've swallowed up girls and boys, Aslan said. Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry. It just said it. Then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Didn't, you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose that I'm just going to go and look for another stream then. Aslan said, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen a stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping water up in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the line the moment she finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from the drinking There's got to be another stream. There's got to be another way of salvation. And all the while, she is being drawn to Jesus, and then she drinks deeply of him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Exclusivity. But the beauty of the gospel is that with this exclusivity of Jesus being the only way, beloved, there is no other stream. Along with this exclusivity is enablement. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the beautiful doctrine of predestination and election in Scripture. The Father's forever love set upon you before you ever were, and then he draws you to Christ, taking away your no heart, giving you a yes heart, taking away your heart of stone, and giving you a heart of flesh, opening your blind eyes to the beauty of Jesus, letting you know you're thirsty so that you hear the stream, and wooing you, wooing you to Christ. And the next thing you know, your heart has been changed, and you're just lapping the water up, and you stand there and gaze at the beauty of Jesus with your lips still wet from the drinking. Yes, John 3.16 says, whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But who are the whosoevers? The whosoevers who would believe are those whom the Father draws. Beloved, Jesus is not tolerated in our culture today. I'll close with this. I watched an interview just a couple of weeks ago when the Houston Texans defeated the Cleveland Browns. And T.J. Stroud, the quarterback, was interviewed at the end of the game on NBC. And they asked him what he thought about the game. And the first thing he said, I first want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. NBC clipped that out, edited it, so that what you heard when you listened to the interview was what he said about the game. But you were not allowed to hear him say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every ism in the world is not simply tolerated but celebrated today. Every ism in the world is not simply tolerated, but celebrated today, but not Jesus. But here's the truth, beloved, not the Buddha, not Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, not Gandhi, not Allah, not New Age Gnostic spirituality, not self-indulgence or self-justification, not pluralistic, skeptical, atheistic, secularism itself or religion, 
Not the long march of Marxism through the institutions and its mindless wokeism that goes with it can save you. None of these can save you. Only Jesus can save you and bring the comfort to troubled hearts that you and I so desperately need. Would we be bold enough and broken enough to say that and live it out, come what may, as a church, whatever tribulation would come our way, would we be bold enough and broken enough to say that and to savor that? Again, Richard Alleen, that great Puritan, says, you have better things to feed your soul upon. You have God to feed upon. The blood of Christ, the covenant of grace, the hope of salvation, the joys of the Spirit, the pleasures of eternity, the bread that comes down from heaven, and you have the wine that makes glad the city of our God. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your wages for that which does not satisfy, and your money for that which cannot fill you? Listen to me, and delight yourself in the richest affair. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant with David. This table is a table of covenant renewal. This table is a table for troubled hearts like yours and mine. Come, have this medicine applied. Have it slathered on your hearts this morning.